It's good to see you back. Good morning. How's your week? Are you blessed this week? Amen to that? It's, it's a cliche, but it's true. When you count your blessings, you know that you are blessed. Now, we may not have the big major blessings like uh, anyone won the lottery here? Because it's 1.2 billion, the highest in history, and no one has won yet. Marina? Oh, Illinois. Well, we, we may not have won anything, but if we count our blessings, we know that we are blessed. I'm talking about you were safe the whole time you're driving this week. You are fed. You did not go hungry. You have clothing. You did not, you're not sick. You are strong. You are healthy. I mean, all this, when it adds up, these are blessings from God. Amen. And the more we are focused on these things, the more grateful our hearts become. This is the idea of Christian life. Now, I have a question for you. Have you looked at your old photos lately? We're, we're talking about high school photos, college photos. Now, to some of you, that means black and white. Now, we know your age. <laughs> and to some of you, probably the colored ones, but the faded ones, okay? And when you look, look at your photos... Sometimes it feels sad when you see the one standing next to you or the one in front of you or the one around you have already passed away, and you know that you're getting older. See, our kids are growing faster than the internet. That's the problem here. And time will come that our children will go to college, to maybe to a different state, and you will have to say goodbye. Time will come that your children will have to get married and will move out of the house. And I hope they move out of the house when they get married. Okay? Because in the Philippines, they don't do that. And it, you know, it's going to feel sad. So my question is, what are you going to say as a parting message to your children who are getting out of the house or moving out of the house? Or those people who are going out? What is your parting message? See, Joshua 23 is a parting message, like a farewell to the people of Israel. Here's the context. Uh, Joshua is the last among the first batch. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones survived in the first batch who went out of Egypt. They led the people, the second generation, the sons of the children of their peers. Those were the people that they led that occupied the promised land. So Joshua now is old, chapter 23 of Joshua, last two chapters, and he's giving a farewell message to the people of Israel. This is his context. He's very old. So let me read to you a couple of verses. Uh, verses uh, from chapter 26. It says, A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Now, it's not just only old, but advanced in years. That means he's very old. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. When I'm reading this, I, I cannot help but think of Gandalf the Great. The Great, I mean old, gray beards, gray hair. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, 
along with all the West, with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. And he said this, Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses. Now, I'd like you to imagine Joshua is giving the farewell address to the people of Israel. And he's giving this because he's old. He cannot manage anymore. He has to pass on the baton of leadership. But this new generation is more sophisticated, more savvy, more complicated. And they have settled in the land and their mindset is not warfare anymore. After seven years, their mindset is not warfare. Their mindset is to settle down, have kids. I mean, mind their own business. That's their understanding. And there is a high probability that because they are adapting to the new environment, that there will be a time when they will compromise their faith. What Joshua had in mind is that although they have settled in the land, they have conquered the enemy, but there are still villages, there are still patches, there are still runaways, Canaanites who have run off from faraway places in the mountains, probably in the caves, who have gone off. And they, the people of Israel, will have to eliminate these people, the idol worshipers in the land. Or else, if the enemy will regroup and regrow, the Canaanites, again, the population of the Canaanites will grow. And there will be a point of compromise. You remember Rahab, the, the woman whom the Israelites redeemed in the city of Jericho. Her whole family were spared from judgment. Remember the Gibeonites, the whole group of people were spared. So that means even in Israel, in time of Joshua, Joshua 23, there are still Canaanites in the land. They were not eliminated 100%. And Joshua had this, this feeling that if the Israelites, the new generation, relaxes, that's going to be a problem. They will have to compromise in the end. It's inevitable. See, the occupation of the land is like chemotherapy. Cancer cells. So Canaanites are like cancer cells. Chemotherapy is the seven years of occupation. See, in chemotherapy, you don't necessarily eliminate the cancer cells 100%, correct? If you stop, it may be possible that the cancer cells will regrow. And, and this is what Joshua fears the most. If the Canaanites' population grow again, the people of Israel might compromise their faith. So he warns them, be very careful, be strong to keep and to do. So in verse 6, he said, therefore, and this is a big therefore. Remember the first chapter of uh, Joshua when Joshua did not know what to do and how to lead the people of Israel? Uh, the angel of the Lord told him, be strong and courageous. And so this is what Joshua also wanted to tell them. Be very strong and courageous to do and to keep because that's the only thing that he can, he can give the people of Israel. But this verse, this phrase, by the way, uh, to keep and to do, is literally, literally means to keep watch, to be on your guard, to keep watch. Now, many of you or many of us have traveled overseas. Um, I haven't done that very much, but the idea is that when you go to a certain country, you get your luggage, you go outside the airport, you wait for your ride, but you don't take off your eyes from your luggages and your personal belongings. Or else, somebody might get them. Uh, many years ago, I was in Vietnam. 
the, the capital. And I was there. Um, there was a time when I almost got mugged. There was an alley that, um, that leads to another shortcut for another street, and that's the end is, uh, is in my hotel. So there was that night, I had the famous authentic flow, and I was going back to my hotel. And I had to cross that alley. It was dark. Um, behind me is another tourist whom I recognized, uh, but I don't think he's Asian. So I was just minding my own business. I was going back to the hotel. But because I'm farsighted, um, at the other end of the alley, I saw a motorcycle and two guys waiting. And immediately, I knew there's something wrong here. Because in 2005, I was held up and I was shot. I told you that story. So I knew my instinct here is, is, is really high. I, I knew there's something wrong here. Those two guys are not meant to be there. And so I pretended to stop by a store to buy something. And it was too late for me to tell the other guy who was walking along. And I was right. When he got there, he was jumped in, there was guns and they took everything as if nothing happened. See, if I was not careful, if I was not keeping watch, I would have been the victim. What Joshua is saying is that you Israelites, you new generation, I'm about to die, I'm old, advancing years, you have to be careful to keep and to do. Because if you relax, then time will come that you will compromise and God will be mad at you. Joshua reminds the people of Israel in verse 6. He said, therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. We're talking about Exodus up to Deuteronomy. We're talking about the first five books of the Bible here. That's what he's saying. So he said, turning aside from neither to the right or to the left. That means you have to be very strict so that you do not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them but you shall cling to the lord your god as you have done to this day now, when i was reading this i was thinking how do you mention the name of other gods or swear by them or bow down or serve them when for a fact you know that there's only one god and you are serving yahweh you're worshiping yahweh now, the only thing that this can happen is by association and their association happens in marriage. Now, look at verse 11 and verse 12. It says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. Now, let's pause for a minute there. What we're talking here is an association. It's not just an association because they are neighbors. It's an association of having relationships with them. And this is talking about marriages. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, marriages are more than social contract. It's not just, you know, I like you, let's get married, let's have children, and that's it. Marriages in the ancient Near East is embedded in the overall life cycle aspect of, a, of life of an individual. That means the economics, the politics, the entertainment, family life are all integrated into one, including religion. So that if Israel is to remain faithful, and if Israel is to remain, uh, if is to keep watch, they will have to have a strict policy of 
non-compromise. They cannot intermarry. That's what the Bible is saying. God is prohibiting them from intermarriage because marriage is a point of compromise. Now, there are four things that are mentioned here. You swear by them, you mention their names, you bow down to them, and you serve them. See, it all happens in marriage. In the Eastern context of marriage, at the beginning of the wedding, the gods, the name of the gods are invoked for blessings. And so inevitably, if I'm a Jew and I'm getting married to Canaanite, I would have to invoke the name of, say, Baal, or a Phoenician god, or a Canaanite god. Because marriages are done through the blessings of the gods. And at the end of the wedding, I will have to swear by the name of the gods. See, this is another compromise. At the very end of the wedding, I will have to swear by the name of the gods. And if I want children, I will say, bless me, but to whom shall I pray? So this Israelite will have to pray to the name of another god for blessings. And when these gods give them children, and they would think that these gods are the ones giving them children, they will have to name their children after the gods. Now, see, in the Philippines, we have this, um, some traditional Filipinos would name their children after calendars. After That's why we have so many Marias in the Philippines, right? Some are, were named after saints. Some were named after patrons and gods. This is the case for the ancient Near East. So that means if an Israelite compromises through marriage, an Israelite swears, mentions, bow down, and serve the gods of Canaan. And Joshua is very, very careful. He's saying, you have to be very careful to associate with the Canaanites and give yourselves in marriages to them, or else God will go mad at you. He's saying, be very careful. And they're probably thinking, the Canaanites, they're probably thinking, I'm, I'm not going to compromise. I know who God is. I know who Yahweh is. I just want to marry this Canaanite girl. She looks like Gal Gadot, pretty, you know, Wonder Woman. Or the guys, they look like Thor and Brad Pitt. Oh, my goodness. There is really a point of compromise here. And probably they're saying, she's, she's been my neighbor for three years now after the occupation, and she's kind. Her family is kind. You see, this is a compromise because marriage is not just a social construct. It's a religious quicksand. The wedding ceremony is not just a start of compromise. Joshua was trying to be conservative here. Joshua was trying to be very careful by thinking about the implications and consequences. Now, Apostle Paul in the New Testament also addressed this concern about marriages in compromise. He had the same issue. Now, there was a city by the name of Corinth in the New Testament. The city is famous for the Acro-Corinth or the temple of Aphrodite. Now, when we mention Aphrodite, Aphrodite is the goddess of beauty. I mean, really beautiful. I don't know if you're standard of beauty, but Aphrodite, the goddess, is beautiful. And so Corinth is very famous for this. Another reason for fame and popularity is because Corinth has become the capital of Greece for some time because it has generated so much wealth. How? Because of the Acro-Corinth or the Temple of Aphrodite, the Temple of Aphrodite employs more than 1,000 slave women. These women were called temple prostitutes. 
where they service men from all over the world that generate so much wealth for Aphrodite, the goddess. It's very different here because we cannot really find a comparison for a temple nowadays or religion nowadays that involves sex as a ritual. See, the temple of Corinth, the temple of Aphrodite, for a person to worship the goddess, he must have sex with the temple prostitutes inside the temple. This is why the temple prostitutes are very famous in Corinth. Now, Apostle Paul tried to he tried to determine the facts. He tried to address the compromise of a believer. So when a Greek believer, a Gentile believer, becomes a Christian, he cannot just one day say, I'm not going to the temple anymore because it's a way of life. He cannot just say that. So sometimes, and there are issues in the book of Corinthians, when the believer still goes to the temple and have sex with temple prostitutes, pays for it. And Apostle Paul is saying it's a no-no. If you're a Christian, you cannot do this anymore. Because again, this is a sort of compromise. Another issue that he mentioned is about the food that's offered to idols. If I am a Christian, a believer, and we know that in Corinth, the food that is, sorry, the meat that is sold on the market are first offered to the gods or the idols. That means if I buy myself, meat from the public market, that meat is offered to the idols. One more thing is that if I get invited to a party, a friend who was having birthdays or celebrations, whatever, and I'm offered food, most likely that food, that meat, is offered first to idols. And Paul is saying, look, this is a compromise. But food, it's easy because he said that it's not what, what goes in your mouth, it's what goes out of your heart that really makes you unclean. So food is not really that compromise, but the compromise is going to the temple and eating there. See, here's the thing. The context of the Corinthians is that a lot of things that happen, a lot of celebrations, a lot of birthdays, a lot of dedications, public transactions, main events happen in temple premises. That means if I am a believer and I'm invited to a concert, most likely it will happen in the temple premises. If I get invited to a birthday party, it will happen in temple premises. And when they eat, they drink in the honor of the gods. And Paul is saying this is a sort of compromise. To swear by, to mention the name of the gods, to serve them, to bow down to them, just like in the time of Joshua. Here's another issue that he mentioned about compromise in terms of marriages. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to 16. Apostle Paul said, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Unbelievers, we're talking here about idol worshipers. For what per partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? All these questions are rhetorical questions. We don't know the answer already. And his answer is, for we are the temple of the living God. And therefore, there's no common ground religiously to believer and unbeliever. Now, what he is addressing here is the compromise that believers make when they visit the temple in order to participate in social and religious affairs. What he's saying is that there's no religious common ground. That means 
a believer who visits the temple of Aphrodite to have sex with temple prostitutes is making a compromise. A believer who visits the temple to eat with friends and relatives in honor of the temple gods is making a compromise. A believer who goes to the temple premises to close a business deal and toasts in honor of the gods are also making a compromise. Anything has to do with the temple and the idols is a compromise. What Paul is saying is that we are the temple of God. We cannot go there and compromise because when you go there, it's inevitable. You swear by, you mention the name of the gods, you serve them, you worship them. So in the time of Joshua, marriage to the Canaanites was a point of compromise. In the time of Paul, anything that we do in honor of the gods is a compromise. The reason why the Israelites needed to drive out the Canaanites from the land is so that the land is cleaned up, so that the presence of God may dwell in the land. It's the same thing with the temple of God. We are the temple of God. We cannot be compromised by associating with people who are honoring the gods. That's what Paul is saying. Now imagine the consequences if the Israelites, when Joshua dies, compromises through marriage. Verses 15 and 16. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress or violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, here's the consequence, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. It's like an explosion. And you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Now, good land was mentioned twice. This is very interesting. It's reminiscent of the creation in the Old Testament, Genesis. Every day for six days, God would create and he would say, it's good, it's good. And then on the last day, God said it was very good. See, the Garden of Eden is like the land of Canaan where the presence of God is found. The land of Eden is where he placed the man and the woman so that they can serve God. It's the same way that God placed Israel in the land of Canaan so that they can serve God. So what I'm saying is that the land of Canaan is the new Eden. The presence of God is found there. The most distinct thing is that the presence of God is found in Canaan. And you know what happened? It's, it's, uh, if history repeats itself, history repeated itself in the life of Adam and Eve and the life of the Israelites. Now, the, the man and woman were placed inside the Garden of Eden. God was there. They had good fellowship with God. But then this couple, Adam and Eve, made an association, a sort of transaction with the enemy, the serpent. They did not intermarry with, with the serpent, but they made an association. And so because of that, God expelled them from the land. What Joshua is saying is that this is the same warning that God is giving the Israelites. If you made an association through intermarriage, God will expel you from the land just as how Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. That's a very scary thing to be expelled from the land. I'm thinking... Ex being expelled from the good land is like being put in a maximum facility. We, we call it here Supermax. Supermax is a 23-hour lockdown per day, 23 hours per day, isolation, 
It's a wall within walls. This is what probably Nicholas Cruz is, is facing. You know Nicholas Cruz? He was, when he was 17 years old, he shot 17 people in Parkland, just north of Coral Springs. He's here in Florida. And he's now being sentenced. Now, the jury is trying to determine if he's going to get life sentence or death penalty. That's the only question here. And if it's, if it's life imprisonment, he's looking at another 50 to 70 years of isolation. I can't begin to imagine. I mean... For two years, people get crazy after COVID restrictions of not being able to socialize. How much more the 50 years of isolation? I can't imagine that. What, what Joshua is saying is that for the people of Israel, if you begin to intermarry and compromise and serve other gods, God will expel you from the land like you are isolated from the presence of God. If we are to think of history as linear, there was a time when God was inside the temple in Jerusalem city. The presence of God was there. All the Israelites know God is there in Jerusalem. That's why they make month, uh, yearly pilgrimages to go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice because the presence of God is there. What this means is that right now, there's no temple in Jerusalem, which means there's no presence of God in Jerusalem. So the question is, where's the presence of God now? If the presence of God means the land is good, the land is holy, the land is blessed, it means the, the reverse. Without the presence of God, the land is not good, the land is not, is not holy, the presence of God is not found there. You see, this happens in 586 when the Jews were exiled to Babylon. The temple was destroyed, the walls were destroyed. If you are going to ask a religious Jew, any religious Jew today, if they believe that Jesus is Messiah, they would say no. One reason. Because Jesus did not meet the requirement for being Messiah. And what's the requirement? The Messiah, they believe, will have to rebuild the temple. If he's the Messiah, he will rebuild the temple. Jesus did not rebuild the temple. And for them, Jesus is not Messiah. Simple as that. Now, that's a big problem because we're... we're Although we're reading the same Bible, but we're reading the Bible differently. Let, let's clear this road. Why do we as Christians believe that Jesus is Messiah? Because we believe, this is the answer, because we believe that Jesus rebuilt the temple. Where? Where? I've been reading my Bible, never said that Jesus rebuilt the temple. There was a portion in the Bible, in the Gospels, John chapter 2, that Jesus addressed the people there and he said if you destroy this temple in three days i will raise it up again you remember that jesus is not saying i will destroy this temple he said if you destroy this temple i will raise it up again that's what he's saying it's like a challenge for the people listening to jesus they were thinking of the physical temple they in fact said we built this for 46 years how can you just destroy it and rebuild this in three days impossible but jesus had another thing in mind he was referring to his body, the temple of God. Why would he think that? Now, what's inter interesting here is how, is how he portrayed himself to be the new temple of God. Now, the Jews call the tabernacle Mishkan. Say it with me, Mishkan. All right, it's a fancy word for dwelling or tabernacling. Another word is Shekinah. Say it with me. 
Shekinah. Boom. Now you know two Hebrew words, Mishkan and Shekinah. Mishkan, by the way, are, are still being used by the Jews today. So Mishkan is the tent, the tabernacle. Shekinah is the glory of God. Now both of these are very important in the concept of the temple and the presence of God. The reason why you can only offer animal sacrifices in the temple is because the presence of God is located there. The Mishkan, the, the tabernacle is there, the temple, and the presence of God, the glory, is there. So therefore, there is no other, that's uh, Joshua 22, there's no other place that you can offer worship, only in the tabernacle. There's no other place that you can offer worship and be forgiven, only in the temple. What's very interesting is that Jesus is going around the land of Israel forgiving sins. If forgiveness can only be found in the temple, why is Jesus doing that? Think about that. Because Jesus is the new temple of God. John said in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh. This word, by the way, in John chapter 1, verse 1 is God. The word became flesh and dwelt, Mishkan, among us. And we have seen his glory, Shekinah, the glory, Shekinah, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So in the understanding of John, Jesus is the new Mishkan, the new temple. In the new Mishkan, you will find the glory of God, the Shekinah. Does it make sense? You see, the Jews were forbidden to make an image of God. That's in the Ten Commandments. You shall not make an image or idol. Because nothing resembles God both in heavens, down, and above the earth. No image. And yet, Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. How can an invisible God have an image? And therefore, the image is not physical. That means what he's saying is that Jesus is the embodiment of God. He's the image of the invisible God. In verse 19, he said, For in him, all the fullness, that is glory, that is Shekinah, of God was pleased to dwell, that is Mishkan. So what John and Paul are saying is that Jesus is the new temple of God. You will find the presence of God in Jesus. There's no confusion in the understanding of the early church that Jesus is the embodiment of God. That means by implication, wherever Jesus is, the Mishkan is. Wherever the Mishkan is, God is. Wherever Jesus goes, that is the temple. You can go to God in worship through Jesus Christ. But Apostle Paul did not end there. He said in verse 27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what's this mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now I'm going to tell you this mystery because this is very interesting. You might not get this the first time, but I'd like you to stick with me. There's a mystery here that even the Jews today do not believe. I think this is the reason why the Jews cannot accept the Jesus Messiah because it's a mystery. Remember when Jesus was speaking in parables, the people around him could not understand. It's like a mystery. It's plain and simple language, but they could not understand because it is a mystery. See, the Jews could not accept that Jesus is Messiah because it's a mystery. What Paul is saying here is that there is a deep mystery and the Jews cannot understand this, that mystery is that is Christ is in you. What does it mean? Now, before Jesus ascended to heaven, 
He told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem. Are you still with me? Stay in Jerusalem and you will receive the Holy Spirit there. But stay there. And to make sure that we're not confused with the Spirit of God, we're talking about the same Spirit who brought Jesus to the wilderness in the beginning of his ministry. It's the same Spirit that you find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In the beginning was nothing, it was dark, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's the Holy Spirit. So whenever the Bible talks about the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is the same. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. So, so that there's no confusion, Luke writes Acts chapter 2. He says, when the day of the Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Because they were told not to go anywhere. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Second time, the word filled was mentioned. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now it says that the Spirit of God has filled the entire house. In the minds of those familiar with the story, this happened already. The God, the Spirit of God filling the entire house already happened in the past. What is it? When the first temple was inaugurated. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place, that's the temple, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory, that's the Shekinah, and the Lord filled the house, Mishkan. The first temple, the Holy Spirit came in the form of a cloud. In the New Testament, in the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came again. In the, in the form of fire or tongues of fire. There's no mistake about this. In the first temple, the presence of God was there. In the second temple, the Holy Spirit came. What this means is that, this mystery, is that there's a new temple. Jesus has rebuilt the new temple. And where's this new temple? What this means is that, although this, the second temple was still standing at the time of the Pentecost, but the presence of God was not there anymore. You remember, when Jesus died, the temple was torn into two, and there was nothing in there. It was empty. There was no Ark of the Covenant. There was nothing inside. It's to make, to make them see that there's nothing inside. The Shekinah glory of God is not inside the most holy place. The Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost, is saying that Jesus Christ has rebuilt a new temple. And the new temple is a mystery because it's not a building. It's a group of people. And how do we know that? This only first, this first points to Jesus Christ. Because John said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. He came in the form of man, verse 14. And in verse 18, we beheld His glory, the Shekinah glory of God. But Jesus went to heaven. Okay, so where's this temple now? If Jesus is the new temple, Where's the new temple now? Now, Jesus said, I will build my church. What's this church all about? And I will send you the Holy Spirit. What's this spirit all about? The building of the church and the Holy Spirit talks about the new temple of God. This is the mystery that Apostle Paul is trying to say. See, Jesus is the Mishkan and the Shekinah because he's the embodiment of the presence of God. 
when he was crucified, the temple, his body was destroyed. In his resurrection, the new temple, his body is rebuilt. But then he said, I will build my church. So there's a transfer from him to the church as the extension of the temple of God. And how do we know that the church is the temple of God? If the Holy Spirit is there. The only reason why the Jews believe that the temple is the temple of God is if the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, is inside. How do we know that the church has the presence of God? Paul said, this is a mystery. What this means is that where the Holy Spirit is, the temple is there. Where the temple is there, God is there. Where God is, Apostle Paul is saying that Christ is in you. The church is the new temple. That's why we don't take it lightly when we gather to worship because the church is now the new temple of God. That's exactly what Paul is saying. We cannot compromise because we are the temple of God. When we pray, when we sing our songs to God, this is the equivalent of the priests going inside the temple. They do the incense. The incense is like the aroma that pleases God. That's the equivalent of our prayers and our singing. So it doesn't matter if you're out of tune. What matters is that you sing out your hearts to God. Because it's not about the tune. It's about the desire of your heart pleasing God. So when we worship here, we're not just led to be entertained. We are trying to sing to God ourselves. The, the people here in front are just leading us so that we can sing better songs. The prayer that we do, the community prayer that we do is, is the incense that we burn for God. That's worship. Didn't Paul say in Romans 12, 1, offer yourselves as living sacrifice? How do you do that inside the temple? Where's the temple? When we gather, that's the temple. That is the mystery. This is, is very interesting to say the least. And I would say that there's no place on earth that is more sacred than the church. The Wailing Wall fails in comparison to how sacred this place is right now. See, the walls of Jerusalem have history. The sepulcher, the tomb of Jesus, has a history. The places where Jesus ate, slept, walked, have a history. But they're not sacred because God is not there. This place is sacred because God is here. God is here among the church. That's what Paul is trying to say. And some people are offended by the idea that we can worship God in any place that is not established like a church. It doesn't look like a church, just like the cinema. Some people are offended by the idea that we can worship inside the cinema. Some people are offended by the idea that we can worship inside a restaurant or inside a concert hall or inside any other place except a church that looks like a church. See, the church is not a building. The church are the people of God. We are the temple of God. That's what this mystery is all about. For Joshua and the Israelites, faithfulness to God matters because compromise is a deadly thing. Let me say this. The reason why diets don't work is because of cheat day. Anyone dieting? The reason why diets don't work is because of cheat day. If diet is a program, why do you, why do you have to cheat the program? It doesn't make sense. Now, I've seen many videos of Manny Pacquiao and how he trains. 
And he would say in one interview that he wakes up 3 a.m. every day for eight weeks. 3 a.m. every day for eight weeks. He runs 10 miles a day for eight weeks. He does 2,500 sit-ups every day for eight weeks. And guess what? No cheat day. Now imagine this. This is revolutionary. The reason why prison works is because there's no cheat day. Imagine if prisoners have a day off. On weekends, they would go shopping at Sawgrass Mills. I can't imagine. That's why the guards are, are, are doing their best to keep them at bay inside because inmates will do every opportunity to get out. See, there's no cheat day. What, what Joshua is saying to the new generation of Israelites, you cannot relax. You have to be faithful to keep and to do. Be strong to keep and to do. Do not compromise. You may think that this is fine, but no, this is a point of compromise. So he said this in verse 11. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. So I'm asking a while ago, if you are going to give a parting message to your children who are getting married, to your children who are probably going off to college to a different state. What's your parting message? Joshua is giving his parting message. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Why? Because the more you are in love with God, the less you will desire idols in other gods. This is like the more you are in love with your wife or your husband, the less likely you are to fall in love with another person. Amen? That means the more we devote our time to prayer, reading the Bible, studying God's Word, the fellowship, we will find it likely less to be entertained elsewhere. We will find our pleasures in God. And how do we grow in love with God? Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasure is, is where you are invested the most. Answer these questions. What activities take up most of your time? What things do you spend your money with? What entertainment is your heart most happy with? What are the things that makes you the happiest? Does it have to do with God? Does it have to do with the kingdom of God? That's how you grow in love with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us once again. Though Joshua 23 is a dense chapter, but we get the point. The point is that we are to remain faithful to you because you have been faithful to us. And there are many points of compromises that we can do even in our age today. But Father, I pray you will help us not to relax, to always count our blessings, to always look and focus on how you work in our lives. Apostle Peter said that the enemy is like a hungry lion always looking for someone to devour. There's always temptations everywhere. Father, I pray that you will hold us dear to your heart, close to your heart, so that we will not fall into temp temptation of being lazy, that we will work, that we will keep our toes because we love you and we want to work on this love. Father, allow us, allow us to love you Allow us to be faithful to you. Allow us to remain faithful to you and keep watch on whatever we do. We pray this in Jesus' name.